0: Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join Tiffany and her fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table.
1: Welcome, everyone, to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is Tiffany. I am your host, and I am being joined today with fellow patient co-host, Carice Hill, who is a chronic disease advocate living with ankylosing spondylitis, or as we'll talk about in this episode today, spondyloarthritis. Carice is also a blogger, writer, and all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, welcome, Carice. Thank you. Hi,
2: I'm glad to be here.
1: I'm so glad to, to have you. We saw each other recently at uh, at the American College of Rheumatology. So, we'll have to share
2: that photo. We got a cute photo. <laughs> we did. That was a good evening. <laughs>
1: So we'll, we'll make sure I'll make a note to share that on, on our page. But um, that's when we talked about doing this episode together. And actually, a couple episodes we're going to do together. We're so glad that you are able to do this. Thank you again so much. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, let me tell everybody. We are going to talk about the importance of having the right diagnosis to a patient. How important is it? To know what your disease is called, (laughs) first of all, and to have the right diagnosis. What does that mean to us Mm -hmm. at IFAA and in our talk show or podcast, however you would like to phrase it? The goal is to bring all stakeholders to the table so that we can have a conversation about things that matter to our community. And we typically start these conversations just like we're doing today between myself and Carice, where we're people living with these diseases, we're talking about things that we've noticed in the community, and we're going to start the conversation. But these conversations don't end just because um, we are done with these. We will then invite other stakeholders that are relevant, including patients, to the table to continue the conversation. So the topic that we wanted to to address, because we are both uh, living with these diagnoses, really, Mm -hmm. is A recent umbrella term that is coming up in the spondylitis family. And it's restructuring to be an umbrella term called axial spondyloarthritis or axial spondy or axial spondylitis. It was originally ankylosing spondylitis, right? Carice, that was what everybody knows or everybody had known for quite a while. Yeah. Um, Ankylosing. That's what I knew too when I first got diagnosed. Um, I was originally diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which we'll cover a little bit later, but it was ankylosing. I didn't know any any others. But then in 2009, the assessment of Spondyloarthritis International Society, they created a new classification and they called it axial spondylitis, but then there was a non-radiographic axial spondylitis that was added to identify atypical presentation or early disease and really an attempt to expedite diagnosis and access to care, which yay, we yeah. support, right?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. That's vital.
1: <laughs> That's kind of important. So that was a great thing. And that, you know, it was in 2009, but it took a while to transfer over to the United States, uh, which I think was closer to around two- 2012 and we started hearing about it a lot more at the ULAR, the European League Against Rheumatism meeting around 2012, 2013. It sort of became a hot topic. And that was the same time my diagnosis got changed because I, it was, they had tested me for ankylosing spondylitis in the beginning. And I didn't meet the criteria. There was nothing else. To give me, but seronegative rheumatoid arthritis, but it it was changed, and and we'll talk about our diagnosis journeys here mm. too in a minute. But in in uh, the real difference was the degree of the radiographic evidence. However, as as Carissa and I talked about, because we you know before we do this, we do have conversations, so we kind of know <laughs> a little bit about what we want to talk about. Um, and you, you know, you had brought up a good point that. There are issues in the uniform radiographic readings, uh, and there's a lot of studies that we'll be happy to share on that. But because there's so much uh, interpretation and, and not the uniformity in reading these radiographics, that becomes an issue, especially for rheumatology community. So we're not going to get too much into that because we are going to speak from the patient perspective, but it's it, it's something that as patients who need to be informed... We want to also know what's going on at the other stakeholders and why their versions, or I mean, their interpretations, I should say, of the naming or what we should call this, or should they be differentiated, may differ than what we feel. Right. Um, I know there's a publication that I, I will post. I was reading, and interestingly enough, it's a rheumatologist that I work with at, uh, at OMERACT, which is the Outcomes uh, Measurements of Rheumatology. And it talks a lot about that some in the rheumatology community do not believe that there is a meaningful medical reason to differentiate the terms uh, Mm. between uh, axial or radiographic evidence and (sighs) non-radiographic. And then uh, I just wanted to also mention there's still some unclarity in the coding. And we're, again, not going to go into all of this today, but it is an extended conversation that is going to be relevant to our community. Their uh, the coding is, is used primarily for patients having access to treatments, but it's also really important for tracking disease mm. activity mm-hmm. and post-market surveillance, what's working well in, in different treatments. And at IFAA in particular, we are very invested in advocating for precision medicine or the science of identifying biomarkers and things in our blood that can help identify what what treatments might work for us and so there's there's a reason in our heads why we might lean towards the differentiation but anyway that gives sort of an overview of the the subject matter and this even though we're going to focus on spondylitis this conversation really is relevant to other disease communities because we're just talking about how important it is for us as patients to know what our disease right. is things, issues that have come up in our community or questions that we might have because of it. And uh, I've done a lot of talking, so I'm going to turn it over to Carice to do some talking. And I thought it would be a good idea to start with sort of your diagnosis journey, because this this is what you were diagnosed with. and And we can go from there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is really important to talk about the difference in, you know, why is a name different? And so I'm glad we're going to get into that. So my diagnosis, I think, is a lot different than many um, other people with AS or axial spa, which is what um, Axial Spondyloarthritis is sort of <laughs> shortened <laughs> so, to, Axpa. spa. so long. <laughs> um, so when I was growing up, I didn't really have access to my dad, but I did know that he had this disease that I didn't know the name of, but whatever it was had caused him to have a hunchback. And growing up as a girl, I was told that that was a, a man's disease. And I, you know, it was very rare that I would get it. So I kind of grew up with this assumption that I was safe and that if anybody got my dad's disease, it would be my brother. At the same time, I experienced really bad what I call growing pains as a child in my knees. There were nights that I would cry myself to sleep and just like want to cut my legs off because it was so painful. And then around age 13, my hips began cramping. People around me who were in their 60s or so would say, oh, that sounds like my arthritis. But you know <laughs> kids didn't get arthritis there's <laughs> right, no way I right, mean now right. we know of course that kid you know arthritis does not just happen to older people and that mm-hmm. kids absolutely get it but at the time I was like there's no way I can't have arthritis I'm 13 um right. and then my symptoms progressed I got lower back pain in college and just then you know my whole body hurt and In 2013, when I was 26, I finally started seeking answers for all these symptoms that seemingly weren't connected. Uh, It was only after I was diagnosed that I could look back and say, oh, like that's all part of the same disease. All of these things starting at, you know, before I was even 13 years old. That's when I talked to my dad. I had all these weird symptoms going on and he suggested that I might have the same disease, which just floored me. When I finally got in to see a rheumatologist to see about a diagnosis, my X-rays came back not showing any damage at all. So I was diagnosed based on family history and symptoms, and I don't even think my uh, blood work was showed like inflammation. It was just all based on.
1: Mm-hmm. Me kind
2: of pushing because that's what I knew I had. So that's my... I was 26 right. when I was diagnosed. That's my summary.
1: That's really interesting. One of the things that people who tune into our show will will know, I take a lot of notes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, every, every uh, behind the scenes that people have taken, I have my face like buried down <laughs> in a piece of paper. It's just... These are... It, it, whether we cover them today or we circle back to them, you've mentioned some really important things. And first of all, you said that you, it started um, legs, hips. Was the first time your lower back really bothered you when you were in college? Or did you notice it before that?
2: I actually noticed it before that, but college is when it became a big problem. Okay. So even in high school, I discovered that I couldn't, like, lie on the floor on my stomach and prop myself up with my elbows. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm explaining that well. Because my, you know, after just a couple minutes, my back would just start hurting like it was going to cramp, just like my hips. And I was also just really, like, I couldn't stop moving ever. I (laughs) I was the kid with the jiggly leg or, like, messing with my hair constantly in class. But I only saw later that that's because I was stiff. So my moving all the time was to kind of keep my joints lubricated. But yeah, the lower back pain started, I would say, in high school. And then in college, uh, it was back pain plus spasms, like contractions or convulsions at night that I couldn't control. And an MRI didn't show much doctors blamed it on a, an athlete injury in my knee. Oh. They blamed the my thing. lower back pain <laughs> on my torn ACL. And I was like, but that's, you know, I've had back pain longer than that. So I've had chronic back pain that's been acknowledged by medical professionals since college. Okay. Okay. That's, I, I too
1: was, uh, I was an athlete at the time and I went to the gym a lot and I was told I I clearly injured myself in the gym, but I don't remember right. That's what I was told. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, mm. So that we wanted to share our journeys a little bit because of the issue of differentiation. You know, what is this called? What what do patient what it, why is this important to patients or is it is this important to differentiate because the conversation in the rheumatology community does center around um, maybe this isn't so important to differentiate, but nobody's really asking the patients. <laughs> so, you know, what do we think? And, you know, my journey, we, I won't go into the full, the full story uh, that because I, I've talked about it before on the show, but I'll, I'll summarize. And that is, you know, I had these, the fatigue and the low grade fevers and the typical autoimmune features. Mine started in my chest. And that is something that is signature of spondylitis diseases. However, nobody made that connection at all. It never even came up. It was, I must have something wrong with my lungs or my heart because it was in the chest and I had the fatigue. And, uh, and then it went asymmetrical. So it was in one side of my body. Also, typically, that's uh, mm-hmm. common in spondylitis. But again, I, I, I did not have, I was not a man. Like you said, and I did not, I did not have family history. And Mm -hmm. so when my tailbone area started it, they, they tested me for the gene, the HLA B27, and I was negative. So by that time, Mm -hmm. no family history of that. I do have autoimmune family history. However, Mm -hmm. there was no radiographic evidence and I never had high levels of inflammation. That was a problem with, uh, with my diagnosis, Journey, which interestingly enough, the the non-radiographic, which is what mm-hmm. my diagnosis has been changed to, it it early research is suggesting that it, it's more equal with with men or women, even maybe more predominant in women, and often the person will not have the gene mm. and the person also often will have lower inflammation levels. So now I look at it and say, Well, I checked all the boxes <laughs> <laughs> And I'm hoping by saying that mm. that other people, as they're listening to our journeys and, and they're, you know, they can check their boxes and be more informed when, especially with non-radiographic, because there's such an issue with being with being diagnosed and challenges in that when you don't see anything, uh, then it becomes a, a, a patient's story, especially if they don't have the family history. So this right diagnosis, you were diagnosed ankylosing spondylitis. Correct. And interestingly, you had mentioned you did not have the radiographic. You got the diagnosis uh, based on family history, but you do now, correct? You do have- I do.
2: I'm actually wearing a neck brace, as people who are watching will be able to see. But all of my radiographic damage is in my neck. So I'll go around this. I'll circumlocute for a second. I don't anymore identify as a woman but i do still have a vagina so (laughs) i mean that's strictly medical yes and so people who have vaginas are it's they're more likely to have neck pain with this disease and neck damage whereas for men it's been shown that lower back changes are more common and so that's another reason that it takes longer for women or people who have vaginas to be diagnosed
1: Yes, um, that's interesting. you say that too, because recently, I mean, my neck has always bothered me, but uh, recently, I have had a lot of issues with mobility mm. and loss of range of motion in my neck, and I had also learned at some of these scientific meetings that we attend how that might be attributed uh, to biological sex. So in saying that, how important is it to know you know what it's called so Do you call it axial or do you call it ankylosing or just AS
2: (laughs) or all of the above? I know. Well, yes, all of the above. I guess it really depends on the context right now. So just for so long until recently, like only in the past year, have I called it ankylosing spondylitis or AS, but because I am really enmeshed in the research community and the rheumatology professional community, I also know that it's important to call it axial spondyloarthritis, especially when I'm around medical practitioners or, or researchers, because that is the, you know, around the world, that's the more accepted term now. And it's yes. actually more clinically correct for the anatomy that it affects. Uh, ankylosing spondylitis, you can kind of... Um, How do I say this? You know, spond points to spine, and ankylosing is a verb of what's happening. But really, the axial spondyloarthritis, axial points to central, you know, the center of the body, which Mm -hmm. is primarily where the disease does impact people. And spondyloarthritis points to inflammation and not just, uh, you know, what people used to think that AS did to everyone, which is fusion. And the reality now is that not everyone fuses because we have better treatments out there. So that's a really long way of answering your question, but right now it depends on the context. And I think I'm shifting into calling it AXSPA, which is the shortened version, A-X-S-P-A. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm curious about what you how you're approaching it though, especially because you've had your diagnosis changed,
1: right? Uh, You know, it's it's interesting because that was 2013, and everybody was saying non-radiographic axial Hmm. spondylitis or spondyloarthritis, and even as a person who attends American College of Rheumatology and and the European League Against Rheumatism scientific meetings annually. The last few years, that has been what they're calling it. It's mm-hmm. in the titles, and only recently, <laughs> I think, what I, the last year or so mm-hmm. at these conferences, you're seeing it as the umbrella term, and then right. and then coming out. So I myself of am a little confused. I have to admit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, and and none you think ankylosing arthritis is long. Put non-radiographic in front of it. And it's it's a really long term. Um, so I have been saying it, it's really long. It's almost as long as my name and the organization's name. And you put those all together and my intro is like five minutes long. Uh, yeah.
2: I <laughs> I joke sometimes with my friends who are in the community and know what I'm talking about that, you know, if you put all of the like the full clinical name of what I have, it would be like. Seronegative, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis with peripheral involvement. It's Like, <laughs> put that in the alphabet soup. <laughs> and
1: so, yeah, it's so it's so first of all, it is long, but I was calling it that religiously because that's what I was told I had. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that even it, that's an interesting segue into some of the other conversation that we were having is what it, what is the right thing to say? So now that I know, as you just mentioned in the, in the clinical and research community, it is becoming more acceptable to have it as the umbrella term. I also had read how some people had proposed having R slash XPA, like for radiographic and I, I know that is not being widely accepted, but it has come up mm. <laughs> like, should, so it's, there's still conversation of what, what's the best terminology. I don't think it's ended yet. Mm. I think that, um, we're, we're pushing towards that. I know, uh, even like, uh, national, it was national ankylosing spondylitis society. They changed, the, they updated their name to national axial spondyloarthritis. So, I mean, it's definitely in keeping. I... I do wonder, and, and I don't really know, and I, I asked you this before we started talking, how important is it to the people in our community? Like, would people who were once diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis be at all feel like, wow, well, my disease is more progressed or mine is different than somebody with what Tiffany has or that doesn't have that radiographic presence? Does anybody think, and I don't know if that uh, you don't, you, I mean, we, you and I may not know the answer, so I guess mm-hmm. I'm throwing this out into the world, into the universe, and I'm curious, would anybody be, uh, offended's not the right word, uh, would they think, well, I don't want my disease called the same as yours because you haven't progressed and I have. Do you
2: think that that's even a an issue or a concern? Um. Honestly, I... <sighs> I mean, obviously, neither of us can speak for the whole community. No. I can't say that I've seen things like that, like in conversations within the community. I think we're still such an unknown disease group that people are more focused on awareness of the whole spectrum rather than sort of nitpicking about different levels of hierarchy within the disease group. If that, right. that's kind of what, where we're going with this. I yeah. think more than anything else, people are confused right now and really not sure. Just like you said, like it's confusing to know what the spectrum means or what the umbrella classification means. And on that note, I just want to throw in there that the Spondylitis Association of America has uh, on their website has a tab that talks about the newer and the older classification systems. And they do. It's really good. That, really good. That's probably a resource on other international groups' pages as well. I just, um, since I'm in the US, I pay attention to the Spondylitis Association. I do want to say that at the ACR, the American College of Rheumatology annual meeting this year in Atlanta in uh, 2019, I did attend a, a presentation where it was said that ankylosing spondylitis and axial spondyloarthritis are interchangeable. They're basically, they're the same thing. And Mm -hmm. it's just, we're shifting to using axial spondyloarthritis. So I would say that spondyloarthritis is sort of the umbrella name, and then it splits into non-radiographic and radiographic and also peripheral as a separate one. So I'm kind of going into the weeds here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's important because as patients, we do want to be informed of what we have. People ask us, "What do you have?" You want to be able to 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 say it, Mm. and you want to be able to understand what it means. And you know, another thing that you you kind of delved into a bit, you're about uh, the online communities and conversations around if you change the name, is there an or not? Change? Mm. It's not really a change of a name. It's a. It's an evolution but is that affecting awareness right you've seen some like that as well yeah i, I believe yeah.
2: so uh, i think the most common question i see re- on this topic in sort of like facebook groups or on twitter is what's the difference between spondyloarthritis and as and really the answer is you know it's the same disease uh, or mm-hmm. same disease group and mm-hmm. i think connected to that is people's response to the idea of shifting permanently to calling it expa spa or axial spondyloarthritis mm-hmm. when there's been so much effort by so many people to r- raise awareness about a disease called ankylosing spondylitis. And now all those efforts sort of have to shift and may fall by the wayside because some people... in uh public space who don't have the disease have come to know about this disease under AS
0: mm-hmm.
2: and yep. they may not realize that ACSPA is the same disease. And when we already have to spend so much time and energy educating them about the <laughs> disease, now on top of it, a lot of patients are saying, well now like it's an even harder name to say. <laughs> <laughs> you know, ankylosing spondylitis to axial spondyloarthritis or non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. It's taken me seven years to be able to say that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which is why I, I mean, I often will just cut, I will say, still say spondylitis at the end or just spa uh, just for for that reason. And, you know, I know that I need to be careful about that. And so do others because we want to make sure we're speaking scientifically correct. But it, that's a, I mean, it is a valid point. It, yeah. There is a, a lot of awareness uh, of the efforts and, and, and how will that change. So I guess we'll see. And it's our, it's our duty to continue the efforts. Um, you know, the other thing about that with the, the awareness, it does make me wonder uh, for people who have the earlier disease, like yourself who didn't have the radiographic evidence in the beginning or myself that have never had the radiographic evidence, uh, that potentially this could bring more awareness because we're grouping something together, mm-hmm. and more pe- that brings more people under it. But I don't know. We're just going to have to see. Yeah. Uh, we're just going to have to see. So let's let's shift over to a little bit more about diagnosis, and you know the people are in in our community. We've both been seeing the newer people tend to say axial, mm. the axial spondyloarthritis. Is that correct? Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah, either axial spondyloarthritis or spondyloarthritis without uh, axial. Without. Okay. Um, honestly, I think Axpa could take off <laughs> because <laughs> AS sounds too close to ALS. So some people say, oh yeah, I know someone with Lou Gehrig's disease, but Axpa is different enough. And you can say that you know, faster than ankylosing spondylitis, for example. Yes, you can. Yeah. <laughs> I, have by. I have an axe in my back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of catchy. I mean, it, it, it definitely is. It has uh, it rolls off the tongue a lot better. You know, one of the things about the diagnosis and going back to to both of us and in our journeys, one thing about the whole non-radiographic is a lot of patients are still reporting that their doctors don't believe them Mm. if they don't have um, the evidence. So I know from what I went through, I really hope that this change is something that helps rheumatologists accept that some people just aren't going to have that radiographic change at first, <laughs> or ever, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't diminish what we're feeling right. or the pain that we're going through. So, I guess that's my personal hope um, as far as, as that goes. So, Chris, how important do you think it is for yourself uh, or for others in the community to know what their disease is called and having it listed as like non radiographic or not in their charts? I know my opinion. I'm just curious that <laughs> I'm going to throw mine
2: in. There. I have so many <laughs> answers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, let's just start with so, the topic. Which, one, which one would you like to start with? Well,
2: I'll, I'll go really big picture first. And this is a USA example, just so, you know, people listening in other countries may not get, you know, understand this, but the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, they don't actually know an accurate number of how many people have this disease. And it's because, um, so when I say this disease, I mean a radiographic or really ankylosing spondylitis because so many people, before we had FDA approved medication for non-radiographic axial arthritis, so many rheumatologists were diagnosing patients with ankylosing spondylitis or AXPA, same thing. Just so they could get treatment with a biologic, and yeah. so there are so many people who probably still don't clinically have that diagnosis who may actually have your diagnosis, Tiffany, yes. of non-radiographic. But because of you know the need to access treatments, that's what's remained in their their chart. Uh, so that's the big picture thing where we don't actually have an accurate picture of how many people have. Specific diseases. And I think that's really important for education and research ongoing. But as a patient, I want to know what my disease is. Like, I want to know the right thing. Like, so I'll use the example that as a queer person, I want to know, I want to have the option of labeling myself correctly, like when I'm checking boxes on a form. So if only male and female are there and I don't feel like I identify as either, then I'm not going to feel validated. And it's the same thing with the disease. It's like, sure, even if the treatment isn't going to change, I want validation that my doctor knows exactly what disease they're treating. And I want it in my medical chart because if, as, as it's expected, if coding changes and the FDA continues to approve medications for non-radiographic axial spa, and the treatments change, then I want my medical chart to be accurate so I get the right treatments in the future. Because if your medical Mm -hmm. chart stays the same, you're gonna keep getting the same treatments, even if they're not right. And I'll go to an even, maybe an even simpler example. Like for years and years and years, decades, centuries even, The male body has been used for medical research. And then the findings of that research have been applied to women's bodies. So anybody who's not a man, even if that's not accurate. And in the same way, a lot of the RA research has been applied to people with spondylitis. And I mean, now it's very clear that those are two very different diseases. So if you have RA in your chart, but really, You actually have spondylitis. You're going to be treated like an RA patient, but you might be damaged because the treatments are, you know, moving in different directions now.
1: Yeah. No, that's that's um, you did you said that very well. (laughs) Thank you. That was very well. And it, it was it was what's so perfect about how you said that was my chart still has rheumatoid arthritis in it mm. because I need to access medications. Yeah. And now I haven't had a new prescription. I haven't had to put in a new prescription for about six or eight months. So it will be interesting. I'll have to fill everybody mm. in because when they tried a year ago to say non-radiographic x and then put in, again, this is in the United States in my insurance for the treatment that they felt that I should be on, I was denied because there was no disease code for our disease for this disease, right. and they said we won't even treat it. So they had to lie and say I had I still had rheumatoid arthritis. So I, you know, I think about that because if something would happen to me, you know, it, that, that would have been it. That would have been I go to my grave with that in my chart and. That's important for future generations or family history. All of that stuff is, is really important. The other thing is, um, is for like you mentioned, we are learning that these diseases, even though there is some overlap in some symptoms mm-hmm. and some some clinical features, if we're going to really be able to help our healthcare system financially globally in the future by having treatments that are more targeted to subpopulations this to me is important yeah i, I, I so I respect uh, the opinions that are emerging and the professional rheumatology world that perhaps it might not seem medically necessary to differentiate uh, completely respect that uh, I would like to learn more about um, that that clinical perspective yeah and why that's that way. I just know as myself, I would like to see a world where everybody would be able to have access to a therapy that would work best for them early on Mm -hmm. and not have to do the trial and error and the 30% or 40% of people who are successful on these treatments. So precision medicine is just a really big focus, not for myself, but at IFAA. Mm -hmm. So for me, I guess I'm voting for differentiation in a sense, (laughs) but I'm okay with the axial spa as the overarching term. But I would like some, at least when I know we're doing projects at the nonprofit, I would like to know if a person has non-radiographic or radiographic, because I feel like it's going to help our internal research. In the future.
2: Mm.
1: So I guess that's just my, that's my vote. <laughs> <laughs> so for what it's worth, uh, but we like to know what everybody else thinks. You yeah. know, I, I don't think too many people are asking the patients. Mm. I, I, I know, I know we're, we do, we're in those conversations, but I think it's important if we're gonna, if we're going to have these conversations about what needs to happen in the future, we need to be at the table
2: absolutely and you and i have worked on research in the past that has been patient focused and led led and directed by patients and that very much aligns with your nonprofit mission so of yes. course of course this is important is including the patient <laughs> voice and you know both of us are patients but we're also experts and yes. i think you know for all the medical practitioners listening it's important to know that we are sort of a bridge and a liaison between two mm-hmm. communities that in sometimes, some ways speak a different language. And I, th- I think it is important to make sure we're all understanding the same language so that we can have empowered conversations with each other when we're patients Absolutely. and when we're practitioners.
1: One, 100%. And I think that gives us our, our segue into wrapping up here. Well, uh, because I know (laughs) time flies when you're having so much fun. Uh, But we know one of the things we said in the beginning is the idea of the show of AI Arthritis Voices 360 is to bring stakeholder voices to the table, in particular, Mm -hmm. the patient voice to the table with other stakeholders. Uh, Carice and I have had opportunities to be quote unquote at the table when we attend scientific meetings, Mm -hmm. to an extent. Uh, Not everybody gets that opportunity. And I think there is a need to continue this conversation, both within our patient community, because we want to know, what are your questions? What are you still confused about? Uh, What type of education resources can we provide you to help clarify what's happening? And also, I think that it's really important to carry the conversation on and get the opinions of some rheumatologists and put those voices together and say, okay, well, you wh- what are your thoughts about this topic and why do you feel this way? And then bring the patients to the to the table as well and and see if we're on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. Because I can't tell you I'm sure that we are.
2: Yeah. Can I add one more thing? Yes. On that, you, note. of course you can. So I've <laughs> I've given sort of a shout out to the medical practitioners and I want to give a shout out to patients and remind all of us. I like I need that rem- reminder too, that rheumatologists who are the physician group that most commonly treat spondyloarthritis, they treat, what is it, like 200 plus different diseases. And so I think it's important for the patient community to realize that it's our job to meet our rheumatologists halfway as much as it's our rheumatologist's job to meet us halfway so that we're two uh, really experts in, in what we're going through as patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, because imagine, you know, having a caseload of 200 people <laughs> and only 10 of them have arthritis, And so it's really it's important for us to remember that that we bring that, a lot to our own disease group.
1: And that that's true to all of our diseases under, right. under these umbrellas is I love that though, meet them halfway and and vice versa. Right. I, I know there's a lot of awesome rheumatologists out there that, that are really working hard to listen and, and thank you to all of you out there who, who are doing that. We do love our roomies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, 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 I I would absolutely love to be able to continue this conversation with a couple of rheumatologists or with people from the research community mm-hmm. uh, so that we can broaden the discussions and find out what is most important for each stakeholder group moving forward. I just think that's, that's necessary rather than keep moving forward, not including the patient perspective or what patients want out of this. Yeah. Uh, so, well, I just want to thank you for <laughs> joining me today as a co host. Uh, this has been wonderful. Uh, so, thank you so much for being part of this.
2: Thank you. I look forward to talking with you for another episode sometime. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we could probably arrange that. <laughs> so, thank you, everyone who has is, who is tuned in today. If you are a person living with these diseases, we would love to hear. Uh, from you, your opinions on what your thoughts are on this topic, things that you might still need clarity that we can help to provide resources for you. And also, uh, if you are a person in the research world or the rheumatology world and you have opinions on this topic, we want to hear from you too. And also, if you want to be part of a future show to have this conversation uh, with patients, let's do it. So if you would like to get in on this conversation or you have any questions, regardless of which stakeholder group you are in, patient, researcher, doctor, if you have an opinion, we want to hear it. So please send those to podcast at aiarthritisvoices360.org. If you'd like to put in the subject line spondylitis, then we will uh, be able to identify that rather quickly. Other than that, you can also join the conversation on our social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at IFAIarthritis. And then uh, also you can check out this episode and all of our episodes at AIarthritis.org podcast. Where you can also nominate future co hosts. You can learn how to support the podcast so we can keep giving this show to you week after week and all kinds of wonderful things. So, again, thank you, Carice. And we are signing off from AI Arthritis Voices 360. Woohoo!
0: AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and auto-inflammatory arthritis. Find us on the web at www.airthritis.org Join us again on Wednesday for our special breakout episode where we bring your comments, questions and ideas to the table. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI Arthritis news and events.